Hey, welcome everybody. This is Luke, and today I'm here to drop some more information, I suppose. So, <laughs> all right, to, but today I want to talk about uh, uh, a little bit about bonking and pacing in the marathon. Um, I guess you could probably extend this out to anything over a two-hour race for you. For you. Um, you know, I think you know, I just came across some articles um, in my news feed on the social media. And uh, I'm always interested in those articles because I just want to see what they actually say. Um, they're usually pretty good about um, providing links to the studies. But uh, I'm big on just like what, sure, the science says that, but what is practical? So um, so a couple actually came across my feed that were, were related. And uh, I wanted to, uh, I just wanted to discuss them a little bit. So uh, you know, if you followed me for any length of time, you know that you know I'm a big proponent of even to negative splits. Um, and when we look at when we look at the world records and even just world class performances in general, they're usually run with even to to negative splits. And um, the truth is, that to do that's pretty tough. Um, you know, I think, uh, uh, and that's really across the across the board um, when you're looking at elite runners. Uh, a lot of times they're reliant on pacers, and uh, sometimes pacers get a little too aggressive, and uh, and and then you know just the race falls apart. But um, you know, and sometimes it just it just doesn't work out. But uh, in any case, you know, when we look at you know the the three, the four plus hour marathoners. Um, it's it's tough as well, and probably for different reasons. Um, but the bottom line is it's hard to, it's hard to do. It's easy to say to do it, but how do we actually get there? And, uh, just to back that up a little bit, you know, I created a poll in my Facebook group and I asked some questions to specifically, specifically four hour plus marathoners and 48% of them said that they positive splitted their fastest marathon by at least five minutes. So their second half was slower by five minutes than their, than their first half. And so you know, it's not exactly great odds to run a negative split. And, you know, and truth be told, I probably need to follow up with some more questions. Um, it'd be interesting to see, and this will make more sense as we get into it, but it'd be interesting to see how those athletes trained to run what they did and, you know, whether they were using, you know, one of my schedules, Hans's Marathon Method, uh, Hal Higdon, Jeff Galloway, whatever. Um, be curious to see what they were doing and how that race unfolded when they when they did set that PR. But, you know, that's a big drop in time. And so, um, you know, it, it's it's definitely not the situation we want. And, and you know, so it's easy, but it's easier said than done to, to run a negative split. And I guess that's the point I'm trying to make here. Um, and then when looking at other data, you know, so Outside Magazine, these are the two articles I was talking about. They had some pretty interesting information. The first one was uh, Amy Burfoot. He was talking about um, uh, bonking or hitting the wall, and he was citing some research that looked at 717,000 runners over a course of several years. So it's a, a lot of runners over a long period of time, which is, which is good, and that's what you're looking for in this type of research. And the main takeaway was that 28% of men, 17% of women would hit the wall during their career so that's it that is different than just slowing down the second half and we'll talk about that a little bit later too but they hit the wall and when they hit the wall they hit it hard because they defined 
hitting the wall as a 5K segment of the race. So they looked at 5K time, 10K time, 15, 20, 25K, 30, 35 on up. And then the last, you know, 2.1 K, the last stretch there. But hitting the wall was defined as a 5K segment of the race that was 20% slower than their beginning paces. And so this was, that's a big, that's a big slowdown, right? And, um, and uh, you know, so if you're running 20-minute 5Ks, that means slowing down to 24-minute 5Ks. And that's pretty darn significant. That's losing over a minute a mile. And by the data that this, in the research, I mean, it looked like people slowed, by, slowed down by a lot more than, than 20%, which is a huge, huge number. Um, just some other things in there. The average time lost uh, was about 31 minutes for men and 33 w- minutes for women when they hit the wall. And that is boom. Could you? I mean, if you've ever done it and you've done to that extent, I mean, that is an absolute soul crusher. So when we hit the wall, I mean, that one thing I want you to take away from there is that when you hit the wall, we're talking about hitting the wall hard, like basically going from a run to a walk. And so. You know, we talk a little bit about slowing down at the end of the marathon, but there's a big difference between slowing down and hitting the wall. That's a huge, huge difference. Um, and then the second article I saw was one from Matt Fitzgerald, again, an outside magazine. And he, he cites a study that looked at variances in runners as finish times slowed. So essentially he looked at, you know, they were looking at four to four and a half hour marathoners tended to slow 15% over the course of the race, which is a significant number. 4.30, if you were slower than 4.30, that tended to be over 17% uh, over the course of the marathon. So hitting, getting close to that 20% mark. Um, so that's just slowing down, right? So 20% was considered hitting the wall, and you're still talking 15 to 17% slowing down. Even sub-four-hour marathoners tended to slow down about 13%, which is a big number. I mean, that's those are big numbers to lose over the course of – the second half, and let's be honest, it's probably really the last 25% of the race that you're losing the majority of that time. Um, but that's those are big numbers, and that, but that's the average of all performances, right? So that's just the average performance over the course of all those all those marathon performances. But and the trend that I hope you see there is that basically, you know, hitting the wall is a big drop in performance. We're talking, you know, literally going from a walk or run to a walk, and then there's still slowing down um, and that still can take a significant portion but the second part of that is that the slower you are to begin with and I'm not using that in a bad way I'm just you know physically slower uh, the more you tend to lose and that's that's interesting to me like how do we how do we overcome that what are the other factors involved with that because I don't think it's just that a person's slower I just think that there's there's got to be more to the story right like why are they actually slowing down and so I had a few thoughts. The first thing that came to mind was another outside article that appeared in 2016. And this was a look at all the Strava data compiled over the course of a year or two. And there was some interesting statistics in there. And the first one was that sub three hour marathoners ran the most, which is not a big, big surprise there, averaging about 50 miles a week. But when you look at four hour marathoners, they're running about half of that. So I think it was right around 25 miles a week that they averaged. Uh, also, the average miles that these four-hour marathoners are running were closer to race pace in their everyday training uh, the closer you were to a four-hour marathon. So the, the closer you got to four hours, the, the more time you spent near or at your, uh, your race pace. And then at four hours, runners tended to run faster or right at goal race pace in their training. And then four-hour plus marathoners 
tended to do less than five miles in over half of their weekly runs. So, as you can imagine, training that is done over the course of the segment plays a huge role in how well a person can gauge in pace and effort, practice fueling, establish and clear break in paces. But just think about that. So four plus hour marathoners, say they're running 25 miles a week, half of their runs are less than five miles a, a run, which basically means for the most part, they're running a few times a week and then running a big long run on the weekend. So there's not that bigger consistency that to me so to me that's an automatic tell that they're not able to withstand the paces for as long as they possibly could simply because the training doesn't support it Um, and that's a huge huge deal so to me it's less about being you know it's chicken and egg type of thing right like are you a four and a half hour marathoner because uh you're four and a half hour marathoner or is it because you just don't aren't training the mileage right and i'm just basically looking at what this what the data is saying there and the second thing that came to mind was yet another article. So now I'm on four outside articles. Oh, my goodness. And this time it's from Alex Hutchinson. And this article looked at the idea of critical pace or critical power. And this is the threshold that you can hold for about 30 minutes. Uh, this is important for a couple of reasons. One is that it's a very good indicator of marathon ability. For example, we know that elite marathoners can run about 96% of their critical pace or power for a marathon and at the time of that being produced we weren't sure what recreational runners could maintain but i would say it's safe to suffice that it's not 96 percent and the second part of that is that the longer we are on our feet the lower our critical power or pace becomes so um, in the study that he looked at they were this was more for the sub two hour project a few years ago But what they found was that after two hours, critical pace actually started slowing down by 9%. And so how much might it drop for a three-hour marathon or a four-hour marathon? Even if it stays at 9%, if you went out too hard and you were already approaching that critical pace, and then that critical pace drops after you get to two hours, that could mean you have, you know, 30, 45, 60 92 hours left a race and you're above critical pace and so once you cross that threshold it's very hard to come back from it and you just cannot withstand that pace and that just means a lot more likely to at least slow down significantly if not bonk or hit the wall um but i mean to me these are all interesting it's all interesting but it's all it makes the idea of fatigue very complex and so we can't I mean we can't really just put it on these I mean these are probably just parts of the things that are going on and so then you have to throw in things like nutrition uh, mental status as far as mental toughness and resiliency and things like that or do we just shut down when it gets hard all those things play a role in in the fatigue but these I would say are two big physiological drivers for a lot of the people in that four plus hour range looking to get better, right? Like if we go out a little bit too hard, a little bit above where we're at, then then uh, it can make a, make a big difference when we get later into the race. And so putting it all together, I think I already start that, but it's it's hard and it's hard for me to, it makes my head hurt a little bit just trying to wrap my brain around all of these different facets of what can what can happen. But I think the main points are is that the slower we are, the more variance in pace or you know basically the amount we're gonna slow down, is going to probably increase unless we are well-trained and pacing well. 
running to even to negative splits is a lot easier said than done, especially at slower um, goal paces. And then third, slowing down is different than hitting the wall, but it is inevitable that you will slow down at some point, right? So where is that at? So if 345, three and a half, four hour marathoners, where does that point lie? I do think it's trainable. Um, and I, I'm kind of right asking this as a question, but I, I personally think it's trainable. Um, I think when you look at the average person based on that Strava data, yes, it's probably inevitable that that person's going to slow down into that 345 to four hour marathon. They're, they're not going to be physically able to run an even to negative split because simply because the training doesn't support that, right? And so that has to be a driving factor. My coaching part of this, um, I want to get into that a little bit. Um, so when, when I was writing Hanson's Marathon Method, I looked at the stats from Running USA, and the thing that jumped out to me the most was that the continual slowing of American runners. Now, granted, that number increased every year, and at the point, of, you know, when I write the second edition, it was like three or four years ago, five years ago maybe, um, you know, we were averaging maybe 550 to 600,000 people per year in the United States running a marathon, and then um, at least one marathon. And then um, you look back even to like the 1980s, and that number was well under 100,000 people overall, you know, for the whole year. I mean, now you're getting, there's uh, two races in the United States alone that get 100,000 people a year, right? Between Chicago and New York, and you throw in Boston, there's almost... 140,000 people alone just in those three marathons, right? So numbers are huge, which is going to drive times down or slower. Um, but still, you look at that Strava data, that's a, just a telling sign to me that just people are training less and less and less, right? And so we are able to run a marathon, but we're not able to, you know, maybe perform at the, our best at the marathon. Um, I think the average time it slowed down close to four hours. So personally, I took that as my mission was to, to really to change that. And I think when you Look at this. What's the Strava data? I wanted my because one of my part of my mission statement as a company is more uh, to improve the average American marathon time. Um, I would love to see that get trend start trending the other way. Um, but I think when you look at the Strava data showed that we talked about and how we versus how we train as far as Lou Humphrey running or if you follow Hanson's Marathon Method books they're two different universes, right? Like you're not running 25 miles a week. You're not running half your mileage at less than five miles a week. You don't think you even have, once you get into the meat and potatoes of the schedule, I don't think you even have a run that's under five miles um, at a time, right? So there's just two different two different universes. And I think uh, um, that's a glaring difference. So, so my, I guess my point with that is if you are following with us, that Strava data, you are bringing that Strava data up, right? You're not, you're not part of the, the average is bringing that down. Um, and so you are going to be much more likely to be prepared to be able to run even to negative splits. And I wholeheartedly believe that if training and changes, training is changed, then performances will start to drop. And so again, um, just looking at that, again, just going back to the Strava data, if a person's running four to five hours, they're running 25 miles a week, and they're doing a long run of 10 to 15 miles at least, then that is about 10 miles spread out over the rest of the six weeks. That's not a lot of opportunity to get any other pace work done. That's not enough room to really get any length of tempo runs done. Your easy runs are so short that you're not really getting the most aerobic benefit you can get out of those. Um, and so just by putting more volume, you get more opportunity for different type of work. You learn how to run tired. You learn how to gauge effort better. Because think about it, you're always fresh for that long run. You're always fresh for that long run. Now you go into these long runs, 
in our schedule and you're always tired for those long runs. So you know what it's like to perform while feeling tired, right? And so you learn those things. And that is probably the second most valuable thing to learn other than what it means to uh, run the appropriate pace, right? And so that's a huge, huge thing. And then I think you also have a more realistic view of what you're currently capable of. Because I think if somebody's into that long run fresh and they're doing their long run of 15 miles faster or at race pace, I think they automatically think, well, I'm gonna run faster on race day. But the thing is, you're fresh going into that long run every week. And so by the time you get to the race, yeah, you're good for 15 miles. But once you get past 15, 16, 17, 18 miles, the wheels start to come off much easier. Moving on from there, I think in terms of variance of pacing or really, you know, the slowing down of pace during the marathon, I think it is, I do think it is easier for runners who are in the four hour range to unintentionally go out way over their head. So like when I was looking at the VDOT calculator is a very popular calculator. And so I was looking at that and basically the constant is you can run a half marathon 17 seconds faster per mile than a marathon. So if your marathon pace is 930, then theoretically you could run a half in about 9.13 a mile. And this doesn't seem to change much, at least on paper, faster or slower. It's always about 17 seconds is what the numbers looked like. And so you know that if you, so the faster you are, I feel like the if you push too hard, you know that the price is going to be paid, right? So like if my goal pace was 5.10 as a pro and I went out at 4.53, that's literally the difference between running 215 and sub 210. That's like, that's just two different worlds, right? Like that's, that's almost my, that's, that's me to, for me to go out at my half marathon pace, I can only sustain that pace for an hour, right? So I know that if I'm hitting that pace, it's going to be a miserable finish. Like, cause I know what's going to happen if I push at that pace too long. But if you take a person who's running 10 minute pace per mile and they constantly go between 9.45 and 9.35 in their training, but they're only running three or four miles at a time, when they do that, they're not gonna think that much about it, right? Like they're gonna think, oh, I'm good. This is what I run at every time. It feels comfortable. I'm. This is a comfortable pace. But the truth is, it's theoretically faster than what you can run for a half marathon. Now, granted, that half marathon is going to be closer to two hours, but I do think like that just, it just makes it easier to have that bigger variance in pace and not think that much about it. So if we're, if we're, excuse me, if we say, you know, first half, we want to be 10 minute pace and we're like 945, theoretically you're running your half marathon pace for the half marathon and then expect to to bounce back from that and, and do well the second half. It's probably not going to happen where, but it felt comfortable, right? But you factor that in along with the idea that your critical pace drops about 9% after two hours. By the time you get to half, 25K, maybe up closer to 30K, all of a sudden that same pace is approaching or passing your critical pace. And that means fatigue's gonna go up exponentially. And then you hit the wall, you hit those significant decreases in pace, whether it's 13% or over 20%, right? And so there's a huge, huge uh, line there that if you cross it, you're gonna pay a significant price. But it felt easy, right? And in and, the and logically, you would. You'd be like, oh, this is just what it is in training, right? So I can definitely see 
how that can happen, especially if you go into a lot of these runs super fresh and you're not ha- you don't have that fatigue in your legs to know that it's going to actually be difficult, right? And so um, that's a big thing. Again, I think it's a big thing with how we train that makes it, um, you know, you hate me during the training, but you, you are just that much stronger and you're better at pacing on, on race day. Um, so like I said, it might feel totally comfortable but after you get to 60, 80, 120 minutes and that critical pace comes back, starts to backtrack closer to what the pace you are running and you cross that threshold, that's when the bad things are going to start to happen. And if you have another 60, 90 minutes to run, whew, that's a long way to have to suffer, right? And so then you throw in those other factors as far as mental fatigue and just being like, you know, you get down on yourself. It's hard to get yourself out of it. And if you throw in poor nutrition with that, now you can't think clearly. You don't have the you don't have the energy sources to keep you moving. You have to slow down to what you're going to burn, what pace you're going to burn primarily fat at. And it's just a whole complexity of issues that kind of snowball together at the same time and boom there you go all right so other things that you have to do in order to put yourself positioned in, uh, to even or negative split so practice how you want to race so if you're a person who goes out and hammers your tempos that's probably how you're going to race and unfortunately even if you're doing a 10 mile tempo run too fast and maybe you sneak that out to 16 miles in the race it still leaves you 10 miles that you're going to have to probably suffer through so practice how you want to race. Practice running on those evens. If you make a mistake, fix it early. If you start out slow, gradually pick it up to where you're at marathon pace or even maybe a little bit faster. A great time to practice that is your long runs. Have your long runs get progressively faster. Like you started at a very easy pace, move into a moderate pace, move into your long run pace, and then maybe start creeping down closer to your marathon pace. That's a that's a great way to do it. And then your overall average time is still going to be well within your moderate to long run range and then the second thing i would say is use same those same runs so your long runs and your tempo runs to practice fueling and fuel like you mean it right like going back to that critical pace article uh critical pace decline was actually countered by taking in enough carbohydrates and that was countered at a rate of 30 to 60 grams per hour and ironically i was just we were just on a webinar with our friends at the feed and we were talking about Kipchoge, and, and they were saying that they would at, he had actually gone up to like almost 150 grams of carbohydrate per hour. So that's a ton, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna ask you to do that much, but I think a lot of people I work with I know are more like that 30 grams per hour, and they truly truly need to be at least 45, 60, and then even maybe beyond that. And there's ways we can do it, and there's probably another source for another conversation, but um, just know that. Practice like you mean it. Like practice at the rate you want to take that fueling in. Practice at the volume you want to take that fueling in. And really get, you know, like it's time of recording this. I think it's actually 18 weeks out from Chicago Marathon. So you have 18 weeks now to start at a small level, so even if it's only one gel an hour, so 25 grams an hour. Get that to where now you're at 35 and then 45 and then 60 and maybe even try to push it up to 75, 90 grams an hour. And even if you only get 60 grams an hour during the race, that's still over twice as much as what you are used to getting in. And your stomach's going to tolerate it so much better. And if you start now, your tolerance is going to build as your workouts build, right? So if you're starting now and you're only at like a four-mile tempo run, 10-mile long run, that's short enough where if you have to suffer, you can still probably suffer. The tempo run, you probably won't even really suffer. By the time you get through the tempo, it's already going to be digested, right? Whereas, you know, 
now you can push that out. You, if you're not, you get up to a six mile tempo and you're doing, uh, you know, instead of 25 grams, now you're doing 35 or 40 grams. Now, you know, you, you've tolerated a little bit more than what you're used to and your stomach's going to be tolerated. So it takes about four weeks to really change um, your stomach and adapt to any, really any training. So over that four weeks, if you push it from 25 to 35, and then you get through that four weeks, you push it from 35 to, you know, maybe 45 or 50, and then on and up from there, you can make a real big difference. And I'm not going to say it's not going to be painful at first. It, you might have some discomfort, but you would rather have that now then try to just gra grab 60 grams an hour on race day and completely blow your race because your stomach can't tolerate it, right? So now's the time to suffer through that. Run different races. Take segments to develop thresholds like critical pace and lactate thresholds. So that means half marathon paces or 10K. 10, 10K. Um, so critical pace, that might be 5K to 8K pace for some of you. Might be closer to 10, 8K to 10K pace for faster runners. Um, and then lactate threshold could be anywhere from like 10K to 20K pace for um, the spectrum of people. Um, and so you can get into those different segments. And if you improve those, now if, you're, if you're critical, say your critical pace was, you know, nine minute pace, what's, you know, and you drop 9% from that after two hours, in your marathon pace, you run trying to run 10 miles, like you can see how that gets closer and closer. But if you raise, that CP to say eight minute pace, and all of a sudden you're still running it. Now you maybe you increase your marathon pace to 9:30. Now you have a minute and a half difference. Where before you only had a minute difference, right? And so you're going to set yourself up to be able to tolerate mistakes a little bit better. But you're also going to have a better understanding of what you can actually do too. And then um, the fourth thing I have there is kind of different. I I feel like you have to have a healthy relationship with technology. Like you can't. Having technology is great. Putting your 100% reliance on technology is tough. And by that, I mean, like, if you're going by heart rate, pace, or uh, power, and even pace to some extent, like, having instantaneous feedback on pace probably isn't the best thing. If you can set that up where it's going to let you know if you're 15 seconds too fast or 15 seconds too slow, and you don't have to look at your race, you can just kind of get into a groove and follow into it. That's not a bad thing. Or you just have what your mile or your average pace for the run is. Or if you have what the mile pace was. But if you have instantaneous feedback, it's just so much variance that you're always looking and you're always adjusting, right? And so you never kind of learn. You're always just kind of relying on what the technology is telling you. And so if you do use the technology that much, use it to the fact that you're using it to correlate effort to what those paces are saying or what that power is saying or what that heart rate is saying. Um, but for me, more of it's more about evaluating afterwards. I mean, pace for monitoring, um, splits and things like that, but heart rate for monitoring afterwards and evaluating workouts, power for evaluating workouts, things like that. To me, that's where it makes the most sense. And you just don't overload your sensories and you can kind of learn how to get into a groove, gauge effort based on, uh, or gauge pace based on efforts. And if you can, I, I truly believe if you can do that, you know you're truly at marathon pace, you're not creeping up, you're not slowing way down, um, you're going to be so much farther ahead than a lot of these people in the marathons, right? So I think those are the four big things you can do. And nutrition, you know, the, the whole thing we had to do with that webinar today really, really opened my eyes. And I think it's so key. Like we have to be more, we have to be better. We have to start early with training our gut. We have to be on it right away and get accustomed to it. Like even doing it the like the big part of the segment, so the nine and 10 mile tempo runs and the 16 mile long runs, 
no, we need to do it sooner. We need to be 100% on that. And we need to do it with um, aggression, I would say, a controlled aggression. And you also need to do it with what you're planning on using race day, right? So if you love Martin, but they have uh, goo and you're going to be taking goo from what they offer, then you better be learning with goo how you're going to make that work, right? And so, um, or how are you going to handle carrying or having support set up where you can have what you need when you need it. And so I think that's, you know, that really was an eye opener today. And so I think uh, that that gave me a lot of ideas for some discussions moving forward. But uh, I think we can we can definitely start, but start doing some stuff. But I think right now, in the general scheme of things, start working on it right now. Even if it's just getting your stomach to tolerate that much volume, um, build into it. All right, so wrap this up at the end of the day. Uh, we know that marathon performance is a complex mixture of physiological, environmental, physical, and mental properties. Like, like you could do 100% of what I just talked about right and still have a crappy day, right? Like if you get, you, you get, a, you get a bad weather day or you get, you know, you're on a hilly course like New York or Boston and it just doesn't work out for you. Um, but uh, it's just a complex uh, set of issues there. But we also know that we get, we get tired and these things change, right? They get, our form changes, our ability to take in food changes or taking fluids change um and it just makes it and it just makes it hard but if we never train in a situation where we're in a similar state meaning super low mileage only doing fresh long runs that type of thing then we we never we never really are used to it and when we try it on race day it's a big shock to the system so we need to shock that system before we get to race day right and do it probably several times so that it, our body is well aware of how it's going to tolerate it. Um, it is more time consuming, but it's so worth it when you put a great race together and you're able to hang tough over those 10 to 15 K. So, you know, I've had races where I've completely fell apart the last 10, 15 K and I've had races where I've really, really done a great job of holding it together that last 10 to 15 K. And it's like, just the experiences, those things are just so night and day I hate those experiences where it's bad. And I'm, you know, it's, that's a silly thing to say, but you know what I mean? It's like, I have very, I don't have very fond memories like that, but I have great memories of when I ran well, like it, it, like in 2006 Boston, where I just held it together so well, or um, San Diego when I ran my PR, like I hit 22 guys, I dropped a 455 miles at 22, and I, I honestly could have kept going, but my quad started cramping and I just backed off just enough so that I could get across the finish line. But mentally I was still there. Uh, mostly physically I was still there. It wasn't, I wasn't, I was tired, but I wasn't able to not push. It was just like, I was a little bit dehydrated and my quad started cramping a little bit and I, I could, I could take it right to that edge. But I felt like if I took it over that edge, I was going to be walking that last mile. I just, I'm like, I had, a, I knew I had a heater going and I wanted to, I just wanted to make sure I got across that line because I knew I was going to PR and I knew it was going to be good. I just had to make sure it was going to happen. If I pushed too hard, it wasn't, it wasn't going to happen. But you know what I mean? It's just our, just our, our memories and our, just our, our experiences are so much different in those different situations. But, um, but the last leg is by the looks of the data, most people don't put themselves in a position for success just because of the training that they're doing or not doing, I guess. And it just doesn't support what they want to do, right? Like, I, you've, you've probably heard me say this before, like a lot of times I find people are training to survive a marathon and they're not training to 
perform at a marathon. And so if your goal is just to go out, raise money for a charity, ch- you know, check it off a bucket list, that's fine. Like, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and judge you and say you have to do it a certain way. Just know what you're getting into, right? Like that's, it's probably going to be pretty hard the second half of that race, particularly the last quarter to a third of that race is going to probably be pretty tough. But if you're looking to break a barrier, start getting close to qualifying for Boston, get under a Boston qualifying time, this is the stuff that matters and it matters the most, right? Like if you, you're going to have to get proficient at these things in order to be, continue to be successful, right? So just going out and running 40, 50 miles a week, isn't going to get it done anymore. Now it's going to be properly pacing my workouts, properly fueling my workouts, properly uh, increasing all those other thresholds by racing other distances, making marathon pace feel that much more comfortable, giving myself more leeway if I do make a mistake. Those are the things that are going to give you the most benefit now because the mileage itself, you've really kind of almost plateaued at that. You're going to get maybe, you're, the, the amount you can gain by just adding mileage is less and less once you get past a certain point, right? So um, if where are you going to get most bang for your buck? Is it going to be going from 60 to 80 miles a week? No, probably not. It's probably going to be staying at 60 miles a week and then doing all the smaller things right, right? You know, and that's where you're going to get the most bang for your buck. So, all right. So I don't stop rambling on that, but you, you get what I'm saying. And I think the last thing I would take away from that is just like when you see the headlines about how hard it is just to even pace and you see, how, you really are discovered that the article is, if you see headlines, dig deeper into the headlines, I try to do that. I try to put that into a practical aspect for, for my athletes and people who are following us. Um, but, you know, my big takeaway is I saw that data about fading, but then I want to say, like, how are these people training, right? And by, you look back at that Strava data, and it's like, okay, well, the support, the training for most people doesn't support what they're actually trying to do. And if you're following us, you're doing the training to support what you want to do. And I can, I can promise you that. So um, just keep that in mind as you are moving forward in your marathon segments and particularly as you're starting a marathon segment when I'm recording this is prime time to think about what I said, those four things that I really thought about um, would be factors in training. So practice how you want to race, uh, practice your fueling with the, with the right authority, how you're going to do it in a race and get really good at it. Run different races. So right now, if you're in the beginning of a marathon starting point, but you want to run some 5Ks and stuff, that's perfectly fine. We have plenty of other discussions talking about that and then have a healthy relationship with technology. Don't let it uh, dictate everything in your run. Um, maybe just save some of it for after the run and look at, at that data too. Um, but uh, just have a healthy relationship with that and, and learn to correlate effort with what the data is telling you so that you can properly use that data. All right. So also in, I'm sharing this as a blog post as well. And I have all the articles in a couple of my blog posts um, linked at the bottom of this. So you can take a look at those articles for yourself. All right. That's it for now. I appreciate you listening as always. And I will talk to you later. Have a great rest of your week. Until next time. Bye-bye.